Support for Need to Know comes from the Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. Learn more at Carnegie.org. Welcome to the Need to Know podcast from the Wilson Center, a podcast for policymakers available to everyone. Always informative, nonpartisan, and relevant, we go beyond the headlines to understand the trend lines in foreign policy. I don't know if any of our listeners out there are like me and possibly have other hobbies besides tracking Congress and tracking foreign affairs, but I love getting into the workshop, doing a little woodworking, tinkering around the house with some home repair. And if you are like that, you have noticed the price of lumber over the last year has just gone bananas. And I wanted to talk to my friend and colleague, Chris Sands, who is the director of our Canada Institute, and he will help us understand some of these softwood lumber issues. Chris, welcome back to the Need to Know podcast. Oh, thanks very much, Aaron. I'm really glad to be here. You know, I've been in meetings before when I was on the Hill and when we did a trip up to Canada. You know, you start talking about the softwood lumber issue between the U.S. and Canada, eyes glaze over, and people are just like, what? is the big deal why is this such an issue but now people want to talk about softwood lumber because the price has tripled over the last year now people care uh so let's talk a little bit about this lumber lumber situation uh first i guess give us the lay of what is uh, the lumber that we're getting from canada well so this is an interesting challenge because if if your listeners are familiar with uh, the commodity prices, uh, timber prices are actually very low. And the difference between timber and lumber is milling. And we're having real choke points at milling where some mills can't open because of COVID restrictions. And normally we'd say, well, Canada could send us some, you know, some milled lumber. They have an export ban on raw logs. So they don't send timber. They only send lumber our way. And that's one of the reasons this has been controversial, because what Canada exports goes around the American milling sector, which right now can't get the workers and can't operate normally. So uh, in a way, if we open the border to Canadian lumber, we'd solve the consumer's problem. But we put the millers who are already, you know, struggling and being this bottleneck um, in, into a dire situation. They might never come back. So I think that's one of the reasons the Canada-U.S. dispute intersects with this market challenge, which is very much driven by our COVID reality right now. Right. So in my understanding of what has happened over the last year is just like many other sectors in our supply chain, the sawmill industry essentially shut down last March. And there was also an anticipation that there was going to be some slackness in the market anyway. Uh, lumber has not done very well over the last few years, and they were not anticipating 2020 to be any better. Uh, and so the shutdown, but then people like me are sitting at home and we're like, well, maybe it's time to finish that recording studio that I now need to do podcasts at home in. Uh, and uh, Chris can see, but uh, since it's a, an audio podcast, you know, this wonderful uh, pine walls that I have around me, uh, was able to purchase all those before the price went crazy. But 
people like me, they're looking around their house and all these things that they can do without commute times and adding, <laughs> adding to their day. Uh, there's a lot of people that suddenly demand spikes. And well, and people often then think about this dispute we've had with Canada going back to the 1980s, and they say, well, why don't, why don't we import more Canadian lumber? And as I say, that wouldn't help the millers, but it also creates a couple of other wrinkles um, that have to do with the way in which we, um, we allocate land and make it possible for uh, lumber companies to, to get logs to the millers, et cetera, and the way that Canada does. And the best way to explain that difference is that most forested land in the United States, in the continental United States, is in private hands. There are some federal lands and some federal logging rights, but for the most part, uh, what a timber company does is bid to be able to harvest a particular parcel. And most landowners auction that right off uh, to bring in a company to then harvest. And sometimes there are replanting requirements and other things that will, are added on to the price to get access to the land. Now, several years ago, thanks to environmental uh, pressure, we no longer let you move logs down rivers. Uh, they get in the way of everything else the river does, including uh, transport of, of boats and, and inland waterways, that sort of thing. So you can't move the timber that way. You have to move it pretty much by truck. And because a lot of the parcels that timber companies get access to are kind of funny jigsaw puzzle size, they, gotta, they have to get in there. And maybe they have a mini mill that operates on site for a bit, but often they have to, log, they have to move the logs to a miller uh, centrally located. And then you have the economies of scale or, or I guess the scale operation uh, situation. The miller wants a steady stream of lumber and wants it coming out the back end steadily. And they're dealing with multiple timber harvesters who have to feed in. And it's easy for that system to get bottlenecked. The original Canada US, oh, I should contrast with what happens in Canada. In Canada, almost all of the forested land belongs to the province in which it's grown. It's called the provincial crown, but it's essentially non-private land. And so the provinces, you're really going back a long way. They just simply decide what's the reasonable amount of, of acreage that should be harvested in a year, set a replanting requirement, and then take you know, bids from harvesters who wanna come in and, and do the, the logging, you know, cut down the timber. And they've been able, because they're a single owner and their government, to set multi-year leases um, and really large parcels of, in case you didn't notice, Canada is 10% is larger than the land area of the U.S. However, they only have about 10% of the population. So there's a lot of big, beautiful forested land that can, that, where you're not going to disturb anyone except for maybe the occasional owl uh, by going in and doing harvesting. So you can do a 10 year plan, a five year plan to work that, that area. You've got your work crews, you've got your work camps, everything can be set up centrally. And it, it's a built in efficiency that they have. And for most provinces, they simply came up with the allocation, took requests from different timber uh, companies and that's it. There was no fee, they just had the obligation to replant. So you look at the, the situation between the Americans and the Canadians, the Americans are paying for access, they have the inefficiency of transport, and they have the challenge of finding a mill that they can get to and keeping that pace steady so everybody's working. In Canada, that soup to nuts can be vertically integrated so that you have a large parcel of land, you have a longer period of time to work it, and you're not paying access fees 
to the owner because it's the province. You're just taking on the commitment for replanting. So it's a much more efficient situation. If you were David Ricardo, famous uh, economist of the past, you would say it's a question of factor endowment. That Canada does have a lot of forested land, but there's no doubt that the public policy structure also makes it much easier for Canada to operate than it is for our guys here. And I also understand, and I am not an expert in this at all, it's just on things that I have read in my own interest of this, but it's not necessarily like you can just, if for some reason American timber and American mills were able to just be able to start up tomorrow, it's not exactly a one-to-one with Southern Pine and what's coming out of British Columbia as far as building grade materials and things like that. Uh, so there is sort of, we, we rely on Canada to a certain degree for this supply. Uh, am I correct yeah. on that? You, you are correct on that. Um, and this is one of the challenges that we face because particularly in the South, you have a longer growing season. And uh, that's that's a big advantage because you can maybe turn around a crop quicker, you can replant and get a quicker harvest. So those are good things in the US. And the American South has been become a real heartland. If, if you go back uh, 150 years, we clear cut Michigan, a lot of uh, a lot of Minnesota, Wisconsin, because that was the old Northwest Territories. And we needed the lumber for building the American Navy, mostly on the East Coast in those days. Um, now, now, uh, and Canada's early lumber industry had a similar uh, challenge. They were providing uh, timber for the British Navy. And so we didn't actually compete with each other very much. We were both supplying different kind of sectors um, with softwood. Now, now it's changed quite a bit. And we've relied on Canadian imports to, to make up for what has been a slightly diminished Pacific Northwest harvest as the, as the South has become a bigger player for, for us in the United States. So, Chris, I know, you know, from my time being on the Hill and then, of course, you know, working with you and, and our Canada Institute over the years, I know that this softwood lumber issue has been around for a while. I'm not sure exactly where it started, though. So could you just give us a few minutes on where this started and how it progressed? Sure. Um, it, it is a dispute that began in 1982, and a couple of factors are important. One is that in the United States, land for forestry um, is mostly in private hands. So timber companies go into auction to get the rights to, to work a parcel of land. Um, we make it illegal to move logs down rivers, and so mostly due to environmental concerns. And so you got to truck them to mills. And even with mini mills, the mills got to have a steady flow of logs. So those are challenges in U the U.S. lumber sector. In Canada, the province in which the land uh, is or the trees are, is the landowner that can allocate a certain amount of land that they think is environmentally sustainable to timber companies that want to work. It. And they can do multi-year leases that allow for the co-location of a timber mill, work camps, et cetera. And so that's allowed Canada to be very competitive on prices. In the 1980s, uh, we were moving into mechanization. Everybody's borrowing money to buy equipment. And Canada had the advantage. The big parcels were easier to harvest with this equipment. And the equipment on a small parcel was hard to make money. And because in the 1980s, we had inflation, we had high interest rates because we were trying to beat inflation. A lot of US producers got underwater on their debt. And like the family farm, they came looking for relief and the trade system 
allowed them to petition for relief. And they focused on Canada because Canada was the largest uh, exporter into the U.S. market of softwood lumber. That move in 1982 started off as a series of disputes. We call them wonder, lumber one, two, three, four. And I think where we are now is five. At the end of each of those one, two, three, fours, we came up with some agreement. Uh, I think the most important was maybe lumber three because Canada settled on a voluntary export restraint agreement. They just limited what they shipped to us to keep us happy. Then lumber four, uh, Canada agreed to tax its own lumber in order to keep that uh, to keep the money on their side. But both of those were attempts to accommodate our concerns and avoid a, a trade war. In 2015, the Lumber 4 agreement uh, was allowed to expire. Canada thought it could do a better deal with the United States, and we're still fighting. So they guessed wrong. And now we're trying to deal, again, with that fundamental inequity of Canada's system of, of allocating land being more uh, financially advantageous for Canadian lumber companies versus you, the U.S. system, where you've got some built-in additional costs. So, all right. So we've got lumbers one through four. Uh, and it seems to me like the Canadians keep thinking that they can get a better deal. Like the grass is always greener and they get out of these deals. I mean, is that a fair way to uh, analyze the last 40 years that you just recapped for us? Or is there... Is that not a, a nonpartisan approach? <laughs> is this where a nonpartisan thing? No, you know, it's funny. The Canadians do think they can do a better deal. Part of that is because they feel that these deals are fundamental, fundamentally unjust, that they're very competitive and they have a factor endowment that lets them be competitive. And it's just the uncompetitive American firms that cause trouble. Now, one of the things that happened between um, the 2006 deal and the 2015 expiration of, of the deal that we, we now don't have was that Weyerhaeuser bought Macmillan Bloedel, which was one of the largest British Columbia lumber producers, in fact, the largest at the time. And so there was also hope going into 2015 that, it, that integrated ownership, the same company on both sides of the border, would allow for uh, you know, kind of an insulation or protection. There'd be somebody who would fight back if the Canadians got hit with tariffs. There was also hope that companies like Home Depot would rise to the fore. Home Depot um, in some years has been the largest single importer from Canada across the entire economy just because of the dollar value of the lumber that they're bringing in. So there, there were high hopes that they, they would have new allies, that this was an unjust tariff, and that the two or three firms that launched these cases would just be placated or go away, and the Americans would see reason. Now, I don't want to complain about Canadians, but the U.S. system allows petitioners to ask for relief. That's as important a right as the right of free speech. Congress has decided that if you feel you're being screwed over by imports, you can ask for that to be investigated and for the government to do something about that. That's part of protecting our, our economy. And the Canadians, I think, feel that if they can make an agreement sort of at the top level of the administration, the disputes will go away. There won't be any more of this nonsense. What I think they fundamentally miss is that we, we cannot do a deal or will not do a deal that takes away the right of an individual company or to bring these kind of cases and have them investigated in, you know, in light of the facts. And because of that, they walk away from deals. We end up with another dispute and there's nothing to answer the petitioner who says, 
I'm, I'm facing higher prices. I, I can't compete with the Canadians. Do something about it. And this goes to maybe something else. If you think about, if you put yourself in the Canadian mindset, roughly 65% of Canada's GDP comes from exports. They have a very small internal market. They live by selling to bigger markets outside. Their trade strategy is all about free trade. Get rid of barriers. The market answers things because that works for them. The U.S. is, a, is the largest, richest single market in the world. And our strength is not only that we export great stuff, but it's that we consume great stuff. And you can sell it to the Chinese, but they don't have the consumer with as much money as we do. And so when you're talking about hitting a consumer who's going to fix up their, their house under COVID, we are the golden consumers. We're the ones everybody wants to sell to. And the Canadians think, well, the Americans believe in free trade. They should agree. No export barriers. No, we, we do. But our leverage comes from the fact that everybody wants to trade here. So we say, if you want to trade here, then play by the rules. Don't undercut us. Don't cheat or subsidize or do anything that hurts our, our, our workers. And that's something that became you know, a full-throated part of U.S. trade policy under President Trump. And it's something that hasn't changed under President Biden. So let's let's talk a little bit about that. So it sounds like we're in search of lumber five. <laughs> and, yeah. And and so and, and lumber four expired right and just in time for the U.S. presidential election 2017, a president comes in who has a much different view of trade, imposes a lot of, a lot of tariffs. Uh, steel tariffs included, right? And uh, and so there was also lumber tariffs on Canadian lumber. So tell us a little bit about that. And then let's talk a little, quickly a little bit about the Biden administration's approach and what may happen next. Sure. First, let me make a, a quick comparison of steel, aluminum, and lumber, because there is something that they have in common, and that is that they're commodities. A unit of this material is as good, people will argue about quality, as any other unit. They're perfect substitutes. And so as a result, um, prices tend to swing. When there's a lot on the market, prices are low. When there's not as much on the market, prices go up. For things like your, your cell phone, that's not necessarily a commodity, although it may become one in time because there's so many features in it. And so the market's quite niche, but there's a lot of um, cyclicality in commodity markets. And so the people who, who live and breathe in commodity markets are always watching those prices swing and looking to blame something for the swing. And at the high times, they want the maximum profit they can get to carry them out through the low times. But when the low times come, if they had managed it brilliantly and everything worked out, they'd have the cash from the high times to carry them through the low times. And a lot of farmers do that. But on the other hand, sometimes, <laughs> you find the low times are hard to survive. And so you look for trade protection in the low times. And we were facing a real, a real challenge in the last I guess five or six years because um, the, world, the world market, the world economy um, was pretty global. So commodities could sh be shipped from everywhere. Steel and aluminum could come from Canada. They could come from China. They could come from all over. Everyone was producing these things. So prices were very, very low. And, um, and commodity markets were looking for signs of a recovery that wasn't happening in the late Obama years. And Donald Trump championed the worker because his analysis of the US economy went back to the fight we had with Japan um, in the 1980s when Japanese 
factories were full and busy and everyone was doing great. And it seemed like the U.S. dollar um, being very high, our exports weren't selling abroad because the dollar was too high. Everything was too expensive in the U.S. And so seeing a similar problem in, in the United States in the early, in 2016, 2017, Donald Trump decided to rectify that by, by hitting people with tariffs to encourage them to uh, back off and create some space for the U.S. to recover and become competitive. And in particular, for things like steel and aluminum, he wanted to make sure we had these industries because they're really important for the defense sector, et cetera. Uh, lumber, maybe less so. But uh, here's the problem for the Canadians. It was also the time in which the, the Chinese became very difficult. Their economy was slowing down. They had growth rates that were closer to single digits, which wasn't very encouraging. They want. They used to buy a lot of Canadian product. They weren't buying as much. And suddenly everyone was looking for where the growth would come from. And the United States was it. Trump said yes, but conditional on the fact that you we level the playing field and we're going to do it with these tariffs. Very much a blunt instrument, but um, but something that did sort of rally voters and made them feel like something was being done for them. I, I compare it sometimes to buy American provisions, which Congress will put on a big spending bill. Does it always get us the best value? No, sometimes an imported product would be cheaper. You get more money for the taxpayer's dollar. You get better value for the taxpayer's dollar by say importing Canadian steel or aluminum. But, um, but sometimes your goal as Congress is not just getting the best value for the dollar, but it's also supporting the American worker. And in this case, I think too, whether it's by American or, or an aggressive trade policy with, with tariffs, what you're trying to do is, is help give the American worker an advantage or at least give them home field advantage for their own market. And so post-Trump administration, uh, those tariffs are still in place. But it also sounds like President Biden may be looking to double down on this approach. Yeah, this is this is, I think, one of the other great disappointments for Canada uh, in looking at how the election has changed or in this case, not changed U.S. policy. It's important to remember that the USMCA, when it was ratified by Congress, had larger margins of support and more bipartisan margins of support in the House and in the Senate than did NAFTA, than did the WTO agreement or the Uruguay Round Agreement that created the WTO, and even bigger bipartisan majorities than supported the Canada-US Free Trade Agreement going all the way back to 1988. So this is whether you agree with it or not, this is a very much speaking from the consensus point of both political parties on trade, which is that we have to protect our own and we have to stick up for the American worker. Now, partly that's because I think the American worker is somewhat up for grabs. For a long time, you would have predicted most workers uh, because they were we were highly unionized, that their unions would help align them with um, with the Democrats. That was certainly true for the big industrial unions and like, for example, the auto sector in my hometown of Detroit, always kind of lining up with Democratic presidents and so on. And they were very comfortable in that relationship. Ronald Reagan made a bit of a play for that vote, almost culturally, and he did get a lot of that vote, but it was something we thought was fairly stable. But now, um, first of all, we're not as unionized. I mean, we don't have as many unions in, in a lot of sectors. And second, um, the unions see some value on both sides. Some, some union members are kind of culturally conservative. A lot of them are in the flyover country, you know, in the middle of the Midwest or the, the Plain States. And so they're very open to Republican appeals. And as both parties have competed for this voter, which I think is good news for the voter, they've looked 
to appeals to try to win them over. Nobody wants to be seen as hostile to the working man right now because both Democrats and Republicans think, hey, I've got a shot at those voters. And uh, and so why not? Why not talk to them and why not try to do things for them? Um, and there's no votes in Canada. The Canadians don't vote in our elections. And so there's not much incentive for Congress to uh, say, wait a minute, let's let's be fair to our Canadian friends, much to Justin Trudeau's chagrin. But the working man is trying to renovate their house, do their woodworking projects. It's adding $40,000 to the cost of the new home construction. So, I mean, are we lumbering towards disaster? <laughs> We're lumbering. Well, we are. I mean, and, and this is the other side of trade policy that's often hard, is that consumer benefit is spread over so many people and, the, and consumers aren't very well organized. That's why the middleman, I guess in this case, Home Depot, was seen by Canada as a possible ally. We had a trade dispute uh, almost a decade ago over uh, pasta, believe it or not, and Canada was producing a lot of winter wheat. Um, and durum or winter wheat is really used, uh, used, it's used by the Italians in pasta, it's used by us. And so Canada tried to organize American pasta producers to help lobby Congress to give them uh, a leg up and try to create a counterbalance to the influence of the farmers who saw Canadian durum wheat coming in too cheap. So all I can say about that is that it's natural. Canada is going to look for those middle ground. It's going to try to appeal to people and say, you know, Canadian lumber uh, would help solve your problem. But um, this brings us to another thing that we constantly see um, now in the trade space, which is country of origin labeling. You know, does, does the lumber have a little made in Canada or product of Canada stamped on it so you know what you're getting? Most consumers don't. They, they, you know, they walk in, they see the price, they buy what they need, they have no idea where it came from. And I think this is an important trend for supply chains uh, now in this part of the 20th century. A lot of consumers want to know, you think about this with relation to products from China. They want to know there's no forced labor, no human rights abuses behind the production of this. If you think about Kathy Lee Gifford and her uh, clothing line for uh, maybe 20 years ago, it was, we don't want any child labor uh, you know, in these things. But the conscientious consumer um, increasingly wants some transparency about where the things they buy come from so that they can buy or use their spending to support their values. Um, obviously, now that includes things like racism and other, and other social ills. Well, that could become a Canadian benefit because Canada doesn't use forced labor. Canada doesn't have some of these negatives. So in a way, we could fight Soffit Lumber 5 like we fought all the other disputes with trying to create tariffs and countervailing duties, or Canada could embrace this and say, you know what? We think if we can make consumers in the United States understand Project of Canada means something good and they should feel happy buying it, and then they see that Project of Canada when they get to Home Depot, they will understand better how important Canada is to their trade. And um, I've seen a lot of Canadian companies shy back from being identified as too Canadian because they worry that Americans want, you know, to put American products first. But I don't know. I think the consumer of today is a bit more global, is open to buying things from other countries. That's not the problem, but they care about the content and how it's produced. And so American producers may be able to get the trade system to work against them, but American consumers may be able to take this new ethic of transparency and the conscientious consumption to the next level. I'll give you give you one other example, and that has to do with shareholders. So if you're Pulte or, or Trammell Crow and you build houses for a living, you know, do you want to be able to say to the people who buy your houses, but also to your shareholders, 
you know, we buy lumber from places that are consistent with the values where there's good replanting and it, there's not environmental damage. Well, maybe Canadian lumber could be part of their appeal as they try to meet environmental social governance requirements on the market uh, for big pension funds and others who want to show their values in the companies they invest in. So I think so what will make Softwood Lumber 5 not lumbering to a disaster is a change in the way that we conceive supply chains that gives Canada a very different strategy, one of reaching out to consumers and shareholders and saying, you know, the more you know about the Canadian product, the more you'll find that it really does align with your values. And that should be paramount, not uh, whether it's local to the United States. And that gets more into uh, nearshoring, not offshoring, not inshoring, but nearshoring with allies and this North American trade block that we have. It's interesting. I wonder personally wonder how long it will take for, for these lumber prices to change, but it certainly sounds like there are larger issues. It's not just the price of plywood at Home Depot. Uh, while we may have the sticker shock over it, there are these larger issues behind it with the supply chain, with the the timber export ban, the millers, the, the, the private system versus the provincial crown system. This is a lot uh, to, to really digest behind, behind your lumber. Yeah. Uh, I'll I'll make a prediction here on your podcast, which uh, I'll, I'm sure you will pull back in future uh, to haunt me. But uh, but I, I think the world is evolving its supply chains, and that there will be two systems predominantly: one where there is this transparency, and and people all the way through the process make judgments about how things are produced, and the other will be a system where nobody asks those questions. And those values aren't aren't there. And if you could call one system sort of the American sphere and the other the Chinese sphere, um, there will always be companies and countries that will look for the bottom dollar. Like, how do I get the cheapest price? Absolutely. And I don't want to know. And those companies will find China supply chains will provide them, no questions asked, the cheapest product ever. Whether the quality is as good, that's a question. There's just not a lot of transparency. You won't know. It'll be very much don't ask, don't tell. But I think what is evolving, and I'm I'm fairly optimistic about it is a world in which we there's a lot more data in supply chains and that data is part of us feeling comfortable that we're not destroying the Brazilian rainforest to go back to lumber that's a hardwood mind you not a, a softwood but that we're, what we're doing is is conscientious that won't eliminate the other world but it means that we'll have a high standards trade environment that I think Canada will be competitive in um, even with their uh, system of stumpage, as they call it, where they, they don't like to do auctions uh, to give away their trees. Now, one last thing, and I just have to say this because otherwise you, you will have a listener who will write to you to complain. If I don't mention the great province of New Brunswick. Not, not a lot of people think about New Brunswick, but New Brunswick in response to Lumber 4 set up an auction system for their timberland. And one of the decisions that the Trump administration made was not to exempt them. And they felt that, hey, we finally got what you said. We went with the American system. Please let our lumber in. And the U.S. held them hostage to the bad behavior of the other provinces to try to use. We're going to make poor New Brunswick suffer, even though they did everything we want to create maximum pressure on the federal government to get British Columbia to come in line. Uh, to me, I, I, I love New Brunswick. I love British Columbia. I love everybody in Canada. But I think the U.S. needs to think seriously about differentiating because when you get a province that steps up and there's no right or wrong about how you handle all this, but they went with the American system under pressure from lumber one through four. 
And we ought to recognize that. If we really do want to trade with the Canadians on a level playing field, if that's the fundamental part of our complaint, we have to take yes for an answer. When they fix and reform their system, and it has to be provincial, we ought to at least recognize that New Brunswick lumber is fair play. And in that, we might get, at least here on the eastern seaboard, uh, lumber prices down enough that uh, you can build that new wing on your, uh, on your home. I don't think there's any wing plans at, in the works, but uh, Chris Sands, thanks so much for joining us yet again to explain some of these uh, north of the border issues. We appreciate it. I had a great time, as I always do. Thanks very much, Aaron. If you enjoyed this episode, you're going to want to check out America's 360, a podcast from the Wilson Center that brings together all of our Western Hemisphere experts into one place for roundtable discussion, issues, and answers. Check it out at wilsoncenter.org slash podcasts.